if I, if I think of the broader channel, 39 years, the indirect number has been growing every single year. What we're at now is, you know, a, a point where indirect sales will continue to grow, but not grow as fast as direct sales, meaning that that 64% number, the percentage, you know, will start to level off and, and then drop over the next decade. And that's the first time in 39 years that that's happened. Welcome to the Software Channel Partner Podcast, where you'll hear leaders of partner programs talk about their greatest challenges and most successful solutions. And now your host, Louis Gadima, the president of Revenue and Associates. Welcome to the Software Channel Partner Podcast, where we talk with leaders in software partner programs to learn about what's working today. I'm Louis Gadima, the president of Revenue and Associates, where we help companies grow faster by helping their channel partners grow faster. And if you like what you hear, please go to Apple Podcasts or whatever app you're using and rate it. That will help others learn about the podcast too. Today, I'm happy to welcome back to the podcast, Jay McBain, Principal Analyst for Global Channels at Forrester. Welcome back, Jay. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You are a busy guy. Thanks for uh Thanks for fitting us in again. I see so many social media posts from you about your travels and appearances, and your wife Michelle has been doing an amazing Valentine of a tweet a day for February to you on Twitter. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know where she gets the stories or all the pictures, but uh, I'm watching in awe. I think like uh, like you and others are <laughs> out every day. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's uh. uh at least something away from uh, the political post that we get every day. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, it is 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And you also produce so much thought leadership. So let's talk about that. A few weeks ago, you put out your top 10 trends for the channel for 2020. Uh, really interesting reading, of course, as always. Let's go through those today. Sure. Sounds like a, sounds like a good plan. All right. So you started by saying... And of course, this podcast is not just about the channel, but about the software channel in particular. And and this first trend probably hits the software channel more than some others, but that indirect sales will shrink every year for the next decade. And where do you see that being now? And is this a big uh, function of SaaS? It, it actually is. SaaS is probably one of the leading parts of this trend. One is, you know, if, if I look back 39 years, I, I placed the, you know, the start of the channel. I put that in air quotes because obviously there's many channels and obviously every industry has channels and things like that. But if you look at the technology industry, I place August the 12th, 1981 as an important date when IBM put out the first PC and really designated geographic fenced channels uh, around the world to, to bring the product to market. Obviously, that was greatly expanded in a few years later with Compaq signing up everybody who could fog a mirror. A few years later, Microsoft signed up even people that couldn't fog a mirror. <laughs> and you know, today we have 600,000 bars and MSPs, about 50,000 MSPs around the world. So if I, if I think of the broader channel, 39 years, the indirect number has been growing every single year. And, you know, every company's different, like right up to Microsoft, who does 96% of their business through the channel as a software company, you know, right down to fully direct companies that have, you know, 0%. But, you know, overall, the 
number has and is 64% of the global business to business tech number, which is about $3.5 trillion. So the 2.26 trillion goes through indirect channels. So we have a count up in every software category. Uh, but SaaS, for example, has been stubborn, stubbornly below that 30% mark. And I don't see that changing. And obviously with SaaS growing as fast as it is and replacing a lot of traditional software categories that may have you know, double or in some cases triple the indirect sales percentage, what we're at now is you know, a, a point where indirect sales will continue to grow, but not grow as fast as direct sales, meaning that that 64% number, the percentage, you know, will start to level off and, and then drop over the next decade. And that's the first time in 39 years that that's happened. So when you say SaaS is under 30%, you mean that more than 70% of SaaS is direct and less than 30% is indirect? That is correct. So does this, so if the indirect sales are shrinking and you have this expanding group of partners, does that mean that uh, revenue per partner, channel revenue per partner is going to be uh, shrinking too? In a yeah. Sense? If you only define revenue as money that your channel takes from a customer and through either a one or two tier, three tier distribution model, you know, then hands back to you somehow. The answer is yes, revenue per partner is going to go down. The fact of the matter, though, is, and this jumps ahead to number three on the list, is we're starting to see a trifurcated channel model where companies, especially SaaS companies, are understanding the importance of the early buying journey. That first 68% where a customer spends a lot of their time digitally, understanding their own needs and navigating, talking to peers, looking at you know, media, ebooks and webinars and podcasts like this one. And that early part of the journey is very, very important for SaaS companies. You know, a company will buy on average seven different pieces of SaaS to solve a single problem. And if you're not involved in those early parts of that journey, you're going to lose a deal without knowing there was a deal. So it's less important who takes the customer's money in that scenario and who is influencing the channel? You got to start looking at that instead of tracking it as revenue, you know, track it as attributed revenue. And so that's an important part of the trifurcation. So that's the influencer channel. You obviously have a transactional channel. And then, you know, obviously SaaS, which is spreading to almost every industry, is a recurring business. So getting that first sale is just the first step. You need to re-earn that customer's trust every 30 days forever. So this new emerging third channel, which is the retention channel, is starting to take hold. And you start to see consultants and integrators and other ISVs, you know, non-competitive ISVs, accountants and digital agencies and other players that are working with your customer over the long term to really drive adoption of your product, retention, renewals, upsell, cross-sell. And that's, you know, not a pure revenue channel, but it's a really important channel for your long-term customer value and obviously the health of your business. Yeah. So let's talk about the trifurcated channel a little bit more, and then we'll go back to the second trend that, that you mentioned. So my question, and certainly 
the whole idea of the 68% or whatever percentage you want to use, you know, the customers are, are pretty far along in their research and thinking before they start to interact with vendors and, and ultimately come to a decision and that that's where the influencer can fit in. But my question on the influencer channel is there's always a huge challenge for vendors is mind share and making sure that their partners are, are waking up in the morning thinking about them and especially their partner salespeople are waking up in the morning thinking about them and how they can sell through some of the uh, vendors solutions. And you and I have talked about this and that for many channel partners in the past, much more of their revenue comes from other services than it does come from the vendor, from their commission or whatever cut of the initial transaction it is. And so I'm wondering, where is the incentive? What is grabbing the attention of the influencer channel salespeople enough to make them be thinking about this or, or anybody in the influencer channel to really have the vendor top of mind so that they really do recommend the vendor solution frequently enough to, to make a difference? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I've spent a lot of time in 2019 and early 2020 researching this and, and asking these questions. Really, the number one answer is what I call the multiplier effect. And if you're moving from a world you know, of front-end margin and some slight back-end margins to fuel your business, as a partner, your economics are changing. And what the multiplier effect is, for every dollar that a SaaS company sells, how much services does that you know, spawn or you know, multiply from that number? So last time we got on the phone with each other, we talked about Salesforce, which you know, their current number in 2020 is $4.65. So for every dollar that Salesforce sells, the channel, the broader influence, transactional and retention channels have an ability to go get $4.65, which is a pretty rich, you know, set of services. Today, they sit at 75% margins and Salesforce goes the next step and defines exactly what those are. 64% of that $4.65 is professional services, which breaks down into implementation and integration and security and compliance and governance and business continuity, data, you know, 17 big tech services that flow from every dollar of Salesforce. They also break down other software opportunities, other hardware opportunities inside that pie chart. But they, they go into the point of, you know, how much demand there is, what kind of margins are there in each of those places, and, you know, if you happen to be a partner in, you know, a certain state or province or country, they'll actually help you build the right practice that matches up to demand. And I start to see, you know, we've done this work now with Microsoft and Google and AWS and a bunch of other companies now that are publishing these multiplier numbers. And even mid-sized companies are starting to think about this that really drives the channel. Why would you spend any time at 20%, you know, front-end margin on resale? When you could be spending that same time at 75% in more strategic, more sticky, longer term, uh, important business in front of that customer. And that's a big shift that's going on now. Yeah, and I understand that. And for example, Alyssa Fitzpatrick from Microsoft was on the podcast and we were talking about that they had a, a $9 uh, rather than the Salesforce $4 and something 
that at Microsoft it was over $9 multiplier. But I guess my question is, and I understand that for the transaction channel and I understand it for the retention channel makes a ton of sense. I just don't understand how it fits, how the influencer channel gets much of that. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So if you break down the influence channel, you know, there are alliances in there, affinity partners, affiliates, advocates, ambassadors, digital influencers, super connectors. There's all kinds of players that are building content early in the journey. I think last time we talked about, you know, 35 million different customer conversations, which breaks down into, you know, multiple lines of business, which in the SaaS world, in the software world, makes 65% of all tech decisions now. There's 297 sub-industries and, you know, 200 countries, and there's different sector size and segment of customers, SMB and mid-market and enterprise. And then there's 40 layers of the tech stack today. You know, coming from hardware, software services 10 years ago, you know, now we have 40 layers. You know, security alone has seven layers of the tech stack. So when you multiply all those five vectors together, there's 35 million potential customer segments. And so that gives a big opportunity for influencers to go, let's say, build an ebook for a marketing buyer in a mid-sized clinic in Scotland that drives, you know, 50 doctors and blah, 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 blah. So that's a very unique and specific market. And the way that Google works and the way that Facebook works and way the these marketplaces now, these all these algorithms work, is the more specific and more trusted, the better. Because in the world of generalists, you know, don't survive, don't show up, aren't visible in the new, you know, kind of 68 part of the uh, percent part of the journey. So this is a this is a new channel. They're paid in different ways, but in many cases, you know, they will have an opportunity to play in that multiplier effect as well. I got that. So we've talked about the first trend that indirect sales will be shrinking, and the third one, the trifurcated channel model. Let's uh, then go to the one that we uh, jumped over for a moment, which is that marketplaces are going to be a growing part of this uh, commerce. So what do you see happening there? Yeah, and this is also one very specific to the software industry, uh, as we know, because uh, they are driving this trend uh, for others. Uh, but if you look at the buyer, back to that you know, first 68% of their journey, one of the interesting things now is 73% of them are interested in transacting you know, in an e-commerce, web direct, or marketplace type of fashion. And there's a number of reasons why, you know, one is there's a demographic shift underway, call this the consumer Amazon Alibaba shift. Uh, you know, second is you look at, you know, the average buyer buying seven pieces of software and needing to, you know, procure that and provision that and have that all in one place and be able to manage those licenses as they meter that up and down and things like that, you know, signing up. Larry in the white van to go make relationships with those seven companies and get that all into a single bill can take months. Where if you go to a marketplace today, you can have that all done. You can have that on your credit card. You can have it managed in one place. It's just much more efficient model. And we know that. So that's 73%. At Forrester, we're predicting 17% of all B2B transactions will flow via marketplace within three years, 2023. And 17 doesn't sound as impressive as 73, 
until you find out that there's $13 trillion of B2B spend in the world. We're talking about, you know, almost $2 trillion of movement from perhaps, you know, the channel and more traditional methods into marketplaces and web direct and e-commerce from where we are. So we're starting to see that hockey stick take place and it makes sense. As part of the marketplaces, you know, we're starting to see 20 winners emerge as well. And it is Microsoft, it is Google and AWS, it is Salesforce, who's invested heavily in 2019 in terms of their app exchange. It is Adobe, it is Oracle and SAP and IBM and Workday and ServiceNow and Marketo and NetSuite. So there's there's a lot of interesting activity we're seeing in the marketplace world. And uh, that's definitely a trend to watch, which is driving this, you know, indirect to direct percentage as well. Okay. Then you have number four, channel professionals become ecosystem professionals. So um, what do you mean by ecosystem here? And how's this changing the skills and the day-to-day life of channel professionals? Yeah. So, you know, the first major change is this trifurcated channel. So if it's not a purely revenue generating channel, you know, you may for decades now be running a program anchored on a gold, silver, bronze pyramid, which is a tiered program that is really trying to drive resale. So for example, you mentioned Microsoft, you know, they're bringing on 7,500 new partners per month in 2019. They announced that. And of those 7,500, 80% of them are non-transacting partners. They don't fit in the Microsoft CSP or LSP program that they've had for forever. They're now new channel partners that need to be managed. They need to be, you know, found and recruited, onboarded, educated, trained, enabled, developed, incented, motivated, you know, co-selling, co-marketing, managed, measure, reported. All of that needs to happen, but in a different format. And I'll say a non-linear format. So your program will continue to have the transactional elements, but you'll see companies start to build other functions and capabilities, you know, a lot more self-service in the program to handle those kind of numbers. A lot of AI and automation-driven technology to really drive partners. And it's not the same onboarding process or learning process. It's not the same level of incentives, obviously, because it's not a front or back end margin exercise in terms of financials. These would be capital dollars you're spending. And a lot of the incentives, for example, for an influence channel will come as non-monetary. So, you know, your skills as a channel professional managing this gold, silver, bronze program and really managing a sales channel needs to evolve to managing these three influencing transactional and retention channels and having the skills to attribute revenue, more marketing and obviously customer success over the long term. That's what I define as an ecosystem professional. Okay. So it's all becoming more uh, complex. And you have in your blog post about this, we'll put a link to this in the program notes on on the website, on the Revenue and Associates website. You have a Venn diagram showing how a lot of these overlap. Absolutely. And, you know, with this explosion of channel partners in the software world, for example, you've got every company in every industry is becoming a tech company. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but every services company 
in every industry is becoming tech services. You know, I mentioned accountants and CPA firms. There's 150,000 of them, and 81% of them are now doing tech services. I mentioned digital agencies, 108,000 digital agencies. 78% of them are becoming tech services companies. So everyone is flooding in. They are not all traditional resellers. So you've got to have ecosystem skills. There's one interesting note that Accenture did a survey of CEOs and board members around the world, a pretty exhaustive survey. And it found that 76% think that their current business model will be unrecognizable in five years. Mm -hmm. And ecosystems will be the main change agent. So every company in every industry is seeing an end-of-life potential coming soon, whether you build cars or build hotels. I mean, you can go through every industry, and there's examples of disruption that's happening that could change the course of the future for, for, for every company. And these ecosystem ideas now are not just transactional channel type of ideas. Ecosystems are the future of business. And that's where channel professionals need to grow their skills and, uh, you know, be able to have the seat at the table with that CEO and in front of that board. Yeah, the acceleration of the rate of change in all industries is, is pretty stunning. I'm sure that there are uh, people in a lot of automobile companies who never thought that uh, they'd be competing with some of the companies that they're competing with now or, or making alliances with a, a company like Uber or Lyft. Absolutely. And you know, we're, we're now facing within a generation, the end of car ownership, where we may all be transferred around in white boxes. And all we really care about is, you know, the quality of lazy boy recliner inside, and the level of technology that we want wrapped around us during our journey. So it's, it's a, just an absolute 100% change in the industry they've been in for 120 years. Yeah, and and you know the crazy valuations that go along with it. I think Tesla now, with a fraction of the sales, is worth more. Their market cap is greater than any of the traditional automobile companies. Yeah, I think it's multiple combined now. Uh, yeah, been on an absolute tear. But this is just an idea of of investors seeing this future starting to take hold. And that was one of my other predictions: is this emerging tech that we've always talked about for over a decade. AI, automation, blockchain, self-driving cars, drones, quantum computing, 5G, you know, all these wonderful things that are coming aren't coming anymore. Today, they're multi-million dollar revenue streams for partners, and they're very much moving from early majority, uh, so early adopter into early majority. Uh, so we're seeing these become mass market now, and it's, it's exciting times. And obviously very, very influential for the, for the future of every business that's out there. Yeah, and that was your fifth trend, that emerging tech is not, no longer emerging. It is here. Uh, of course, with everything happening, there will always be another wave of emerging tech behind and other things that will be emerging over the next three years, five years, 10 years, uh, some of which we probably don't even imagine today. Like 10 years ago, we might not have imagined that AI was going to become the force Finally, after decades of development, you know, it really kind of took off around 2014, 2015. Yeah, but, and, you know, I started my career in the early 90s at IBM, and I was a futurist for IBM. So I got to go around to, to colleges and, you know, education, K-12 schools and business audiences. We were just getting ready to play a guy by the name of Gary Kasparov 
in chess mm -hmm. with a computer called Deep Blue that we invented to play chess better than a human. And, you know, we were in very deep AI conversations in the early 90s. And uh, that's the computer that went on to win Jeopardy. And, and obviously we know as Watson today, but there's some, you know, really fascinating history to a lot of these emerging tech categories. Yeah. Okay. Number six, new channel tech companies emerge in the ecosystem space. Yeah. So this was a big change in 2019. So I had published a channel software tech stack. So looking at channel software companies, there's 106 different logos on the sheet of companies who build one of six different categories of channel tech. Could be partner relationship management, through channel marketing automation, TCMA, channel incentives and program management, channel enablement, data, channel data, and channel finance. So one thing we saw emerging in 2019 is a new category uh, in the ecosystem space. And, you know, as I developed the 2020 channel software tech stack, I expect there to be an ecosystem spot. So a couple of examples. When I talk about attributing revenue to an influencer, this is some of the technology is coming out of the consumer world. Like you think about Kim Kardashian and how to attribute revenue when you pay her a million dollars to do an Instagram ad. And you may laugh in the business world, but that exact technology actually works. And that's what we're going to need to use to understand all of these millions of activities that are happening early in the customer journey to get visibility to them and be able to invest in key ones to drive customer behavior and obviously top of funnel activity. So companies like Impact, uh, which built the consumer piece, raised $75 million last year to build the business piece. A company like Partnerize raised $50 million and is building a B2B engine for attribution and to manage, measure, and report on your influencer champ. A company like Workspan, you know, which grew out of the alliances world, now rebranded itself as the ecosystem cloud. And they understand they've got a lot of real interesting technology in terms of how to work with your ecosystem and how to collaborate and how to drive revenue differently than, you know, a gold, silver, bronze program, obviously. But I give, you know, three or four more examples of startups that, you know, one of them has an escrow service. Like one of the challenges in ecosystems is to share data. Even if you have a good partner that's signed up to a contract, they don't want to share data with you. Can you imagine an arm's length ecosystem partner? They're definitely not going to share data. So they just send up, uh, set up a double blind escrow service that both of you can upload into a cloud and it's protected on both sides. And as there are similar opportunities, those will be matched and you'll find opportunities within that data. So really interesting. That's a company called Crossbeam. But some really interesting stuff happening in the ecosystem tech world. And, you know, I think there's about 10 companies now that you know are in place to really run this or help you run. Nobody can run it end to end yet, but help you run that trifurcated channel. It's interesting if, uh, in terms of attribution, because that's kind of the holy grail for marketers, and it's traditionally only been available in a really statistically significant way for very large companies with massive amounts of data. So it'd be interesting to see if they can go down market into mid-sized companies 
mid-sized vendors and and if they have enough data to be able to tease out from there some really actionable attribution insights because companies would love that but it's always been like i said only the biggest companies that could really pull it off yeah and it you know that industry itself might be in the third or fourth inning uh, in the business to business space they might be in the first inning but you know as i said the future of a non-transacting channel is you still have to understand the influence they have and you want to spend money to drive behavior and drive performance you just want to understand where you're spending your money and what kind of return you're getting. So you think that the uh, what you see is that the channel tech landscape has grown from, say, 106 companies last year to 130, 140 companies this year? That's what we're tracking. And just an interesting side note, uh, this channel software tech stack and the infographic that wrapped around it last year is now the second most read document in Forrester history. Wow. Going back 35 plus years, you think about the importance of channels. 75% of the world goes indirect. I mentioned 64% of tech industry goes indirect, but it's got a life of its own in terms of people understanding the software companies that really drive all these changes in channels and ecosystems and partnerships and alliances. So it's, it's kind of fascinating to watch. All right. Number seven, partner experience will catch up to customer experience. And this is something I've talked about on the podcast with a lot of the channel leaders and uh, the increasing emphasis that they put on partner experience. So what do you see happening here? Yeah, so I love to listen to the podcast. I love to listen to you know channel leaders talk about this because it's been a long time coming where I'm going to say maybe three or four years ago, companies became customer obsessed. And they started looking at customer experience as their North Star, which is exactly what you need to do. But once you start doing the mapping, the journey mapping or the buyer mapping, you start to find out all the moments in that buyer's life from you know, that first time they did a Google search all the way through that first 68% of their journey. You know, 71% of the time they make vendor selection after the digital journey through the point of transaction and then in a recurring model, you know, every 30 days forever, the, the journey never ends. The map never ends now. If you pick up all those moments and study them, you know, you're going to find out that, you know, 80% of the time you don't own that moment. That moment's going to be with one of your dealers, one of your resellers or agents or system integrators or other ISVs. I mean, that moment may not be yours. And when they do that initial Google search, you might not be the one on page one of that mid-sized clinic in Scotland. So when that customer, if that's a market that you want, you're going to be want to be partnered up with everybody who does get page one and page two of Google for that search. So this is the partner experience part of this, and it's overlaying the partner experience on top of that customer experience that never ends and understanding how to make the most out of every moment. And like I said, there's an 80% chance you don't own the moment. So it's understanding who does, getting obsessed over that first 68%, getting obsessed, you know, if it's a marketplace, for example, getting obsessed over how that works through the transactional phase, and then knowing who's with your client forever, driving adoption and making your product more sticky is, you know, part of that partner experience. So the numbers in terms of our surveys, and we survey hundreds of thousands of people. You know, we're at a point now where 
43% of customers think that driving customer experience is their most important thing for 2020. We're now at 39% who think that driving partner experience, you know, is just as important. I think both of those are going to actually come to the same number over 50%. And then over time, we'll be totally in parallel. Understanding that your customer experience is reliant on a great partner experience at the same time. So one of the things, Jay, is that sometimes there's a gap between verbiage and execution. I know that Forrester has a survey of over 100,000 consumers on customer experience, and something like 90% of CEOs will say that customer experience is one of their very top priorities. But your survey shows over the last three or four years that consumers think that customer experience is at best flat and, and perhaps declining. So I hope that in the channel that the partner experience and the customer experience is going to actually keep up with the intent here because uh, sometimes there's a gap there. Yeah, I totally agree. And you know, I didn't talk about execution. I just talked about what people feel. And you know, here's an example of uh, you know, people walking around think that they're customer obsessed. And you're a customer of theirs, like an airline or whatever uh, customer you are of theirs. And you're thinking, I'm not sure how they define customer experience, but this sure isn't it. So, <laughs> partners feel the same way. Yeah. You know, partners will hear a channel chief, you know, go on your podcast and talk about how partner experience is the future of their program and be sitting there on hold for 45 minutes and waiting two weeks for a deal reg approval and you know, waiting for this and not getting paid a rebate for that and, you know, having to fill out paperwork and triplicate for everything. And they start to ask themselves, like, are these just words or when is this going to be put into action? When are they going to listen to me and, and really drive ease of use and a good partner interface and, and execution? Yeah. And I hear that, uh, for example, a lot of the channel leaders that I talk with, they'll say that they're Portal is one of their most important tools, and they're doing things like that partners don't have to now file for payments. You know, the transaction happens, the vendor knows they owe the money, it happens right away, they don't have to wait till the end of the month or the end of the quarter. Uh, things like that that can be automated and just make a ton of sense are happening more and more. Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, three more, and I, I know, uh, you know your time is limited and I don't want to take too much of it today. So. Let's talk about these other three, which is the first one, number eight, channel account managers turn into community managers. This is something that you know I think is one of the most important things that I talk about every day. I mentioned at the top of the post that I got to work with 497 companies last year, uh, being an analyst and you know kind of jumping from call to call. And it's something I talk about on every single call. You know, I estimate that you know there are 175,000 software companies by the way and last time i think we talked there was 100,000 you know 10 years ago there was 10,000 and when we do this podcast in 10 years from now there's going to be a million mm -hmm. the size of the channel in terms of what they read where they go and who they follow i get obsessed over and i publish the 54 magazines that people read the 64 podcasts that they listen to the 24 associations that they're a part of, the larger vendor communities, the distributor communities, the thought leaders, the peer groups. And then there's 150 trade shows every year. So it's such a big and wide market 
with millions of players that are being influenced through that window. I talk about communities a lot. And, you know, when you're in a sales channel, you tend to put on channel account managers, which are people who can not only drive sales, but drive the the business behind the sales with that partner. And you need to do that, obviously, with your large transacting partners. But to win in the broader market and to win into new customer segments, and obviously to win in this new world where there's an explosion of partners coming in, you need to understand community marketing. And you need to understand that to be successful today, you need to understand what your customers and your prospective partners are reading and where they go. And based on those things, you know, if I take the shows they go to, who's keynoting, the association that they're in, who sits on the board, the magazines that they read, who's on the front cover, the podcast they listen to, who's the host and who's on the show. If I wrote down that, so when I wrote down that for all the magazines and everything I just mentioned, there's 5,000 people I follow. And I score them. I have an algorithm. You know, if you're on the front cover of the biggest magazine, I give you eight points. If you're on the board of the biggest association, I give you eight points. If you do a road show through, you know, Paris, I give you two points. So as I score every single level of influence across those 5,000 people, I then have a score for everyone. I total it all up and I sort it. And I know who the top 100 people are in the channel in the world. But what I talk about with companies is, in your market, if you want to win mid-sized clinics in Scotland and you follow this exercise of what they read, where they go, and the people they follow, you need to convert you know, the channel account manager idea into a community manager who can go meet those 100 top people, get them to know who you are and who your software company is, get them enough to be dangerous is number two, where they could actually talk intelligently the 30-second elevator pitch. And then third and most important is be able to endorse you, you know, down the road. It could be on their platform, on their podcast or on stage, or it could be at the hotel lobby bar. It doesn't matter. But you need to understand and start managing these communities as opposed to thinking about it as a transactional sales related channel. And this is the companies that do this well have become unicorns, multi-billion dollar software companies. The companies that aren't doing this well you know, continue to struggle and continue to have problem with mindshare, continually have trouble recruiting. And it's such a simple thing that an intern, you know, for $10 an hour can put together these, you know, plans for you in, in terms of how to manage these communities. Okay. Number nine, super connectors pave the way to channel recruitment. So I gave it away just on the previous one, but if you're thinking channel recruitment and you're starting to think about all these type of companies flooding in, you know, with different business models, obviously coming out of different communities and things like that, you're not going to do a traditional recruitment method that you might have, you know, done in the past. So how to put that community management on steroids is leverage those super connectors. Again, when you know the hundred people in Scotland that, you know, really drive all the influence around mid-sized clinics, inside of that hundred, you know, I'm going to say over half of them are potential partners if not three quarters of them. But more than that, they have a Rolodex and they know all of the different players in the value chain. And they could help you build your recruitment. In many cases, they'll give you free consulting. Oh, you need to go here. You need to do this. Have you thought of this meetup? Go to this chamber of commerce event. You know, here's what to do, blah, blah, blah. Did you know, you know, next week in Inverness, they're doing this, this, and this around, 
you know, healthcare. So these are the people that are going to drive your recruitment strategy. So I can't say enough for the companies that are successful out there do this really, really well. Yeah. So much of the time I hear from channel leaders that those personal connections are really what drive their growth of their partner community. And then there's super, super connectors like you. All right. Last one. The chief revenue officer takes the channel reins. Yeah. So this has been, uh, when you start to talk about attribution, you're going to bring in a lot more marketing skills to be able to do that on the front end of the channel. When you talk about retention channels, you're starting to talk, take in a lot of the customer success, customer experience, customer support, you know, kind of talent and personnel and processes into the channel. But if you're going to truly overlay customer experience with partner experience, you're going to have to break down the silo. We still hear that 80% of the 10,000 or so companies that we track at Forrester are siloed channel organizations with their own channel marketing, channel finance, channel sales, channel operations. And to be successful and to truly overlay partner experience with customer experience, that those walls need to be broken down. The work with marketing, because about 10 years ago, the CRO broke down the walls between marketing and sales, which made total sense. And with 64% of tech going indirect, it makes a lot of sense to break down that third wall. All right. Fascinating stuff, Jay. I appreciate you coming on to talk about this again. How can people contact you if they want to learn more or uh, talk with you about some of these things? Yeah, best way is probably LinkedIn. Uh, just uh, uh, send me a connection. And I'll say yes, and we can start talking there. I mean, you can send me a tweet at Jay McBain. Uh, it's jmcbain at Forrester.com. It's probably a hundred ways to reach me, but um, you know, I find LinkedIn is probably the easiest uh, to get going. Yeah, uh, you are not uh, hiding under a, a under a bushel basket. I'm always amazed when I'm working with clients and we're looking at uh, influencers and analysts that there are some many still today who are not very active on social media. And you don't fit that profile at all. You, you are out there and interacting with the whole channel community quite aggressively. And I know it's, uh, it's much appreciated. So thank you for joining us today, Jay. As a token of my appreciation, as I do with all guests, I'll be sending you a copy of my Bullseye Marketing book. It's been named one of the best marketing plan books of all time. And thanks to the listeners to all of you for listening to this software channel partner podcast and please subscribe and listen to future episodes.